You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. You know what I find funny, Bracken? What do you find funny? Well, lots of things. But what's amusing me at the moment is um, we often talk about our usernames when we squadcast Mm -hmm. together. That's our server. And it's always interesting because each of ours always gives a snapshot into like something of the day or how we're feeling and um we bring this up often i do anyways like you know as we start episodes but they're always like noteworthy and worth conversation and yours today says fast again mm-hmm. and i just feel like it is humorous because the sport of running is such a heady game of ups and downs and ebbs and flows and we were having conversations within weeks saying you know i'm not where i need to be or Things aren't maybe progressing as they should. And then all of a sudden you have a good workout and you go, aha, maybe, just maybe things are going where I want them to go. And now your name is fast again, whereas two weeks ago your name was slow AF, for example, or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. It just is slow what it is. as well, last week. Well, right. So point being, it's a little funny because if any of you out there listening are riding the roller coaster that is the relationship of running – we're riding it too, folks, and Bracken is on a really up and down one, maybe. <laughs> Tell me about your screen name, Fast Again. Well, I did it hoping you'd see it because my previous three screen names had something to do with how slow, sore, or old I am. And then I popped one, didn't even pop, just felt really good on one workout, and there I am back. I'm fast again, Kirk. Well, magic. Poof. Not the PEDs, it's just hard work. Ah, a little column A, a little column B. Just kidding. Tongue in cheek, folks, for new listeners. Put a whole lot of beta alanine in my uh, in my pre-workout before this workout. That's legal. That's legal. Pre-workout before this workout. That's very redundant. I've been doing all these baby workouts, taking the long-term approach, knowing what I've done in workouts in the past and where I'd like to be to consider myself fit enough to go after the goals that I have down on paper. And I've been pretty open with you and with the audience that I'm doing these mini versions of real big workouts and I'm just going to progress. They're not the only workouts I'm doing, but hitting these workouts that I'd like to be able to hit down the line, seeing exactly where I reside now and then building from there. Because one of my issues in the past was that I never took into account what I could handle right now structurally. It was only cardiovascularly or how sore I would get. And so I'm looking at other indicators during workout. What can I ha- what what can I handle before the first sign of what I know in the past? If I exceed this sign like two or three weeks in a row, then I get hurt. So I'm just doing bare minimum workouts. They're enough to move the 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 needle a little bit fitness wise, but they're really intended to be a long term. So yesterday I finally got on our local ski hill for the first time. I went there last week, but it was so sloppy I didn't want to tear it up. Which I guess of all the off-road places to run, a ski hill is probably the best one to tear up because they probably don't care at all mm-hmm. about the condition of their grass since 
their money comes off covering the grass. Tear it up. But I didn't. I didn't tear it up. So anyway, yesterday I did some intervals up the ski hill, rest at the top, and then cruise around and then run fast again on the, the flats and the slight descent back to the finish. Did did a couple rounds of that, um, knowing what I'd like to be able to do in the future. And I just felt way better than I've been feeling on my previous workouts. And so just statement, line in the sand, I'm, I'm fast again. Boom. Boom. Mark this day in history, folks. I believe it was yesterday, April 23rd. Put it in your calendars. Mm-hmm. Bracken's fast again. I just wrote it down. And on Wednesday, my next quality session, there's a real good chance that I'm slow again. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Here on forward, it's like B, C, and A, D. And we have entered AD. Well, and what I'm doing is on Wednesdays, I'm running uphill intervals on the treadmill. 15% incline one week, 30% the next. You can't feel good on those, especially when you're rebuilding. But what all those do for me is I always run well on the flats after I've been doing uphill work. So after a few weeks of that, yesterday was my first time outdoor running slightly downhill and then some flats, and I, I felt pretty good. Uphill. Maybe it's just in comparison to trying to run at 30% incline. Uphill treadmill works magic. I swear to God, 15 to 30% back and forth, undulating in and out of threshold for intervals early in the week. Then later in the week on the weekend, you just like pop. It's the most bizarre thing, but it works for me too. has to do with impact or maybe slightly different muscle engagement, leaving alone flat ground running and downhill running engagement muscles a little bit. It's not exactly how it works, but I'm trying to wrap my mind around it because it's it's foolproof and you ain't no fool. I hope not foolish about some things, but it kind of is almost just like taking off a, a heavy coat or a weight vest. You remove that incline to the equation and you just feel lighter and faster because the work mm. is just easier. You can suddenly use momentum and inertia that doesn't yep. exist at 30% incline. It's just not, there's no inertia there. You can use gravity to your advantage. Um, okay. Well, that's good to see. I'm happy to see that Bracken. You got to have some wins in training, but you do. I'm curious about your screen name now. You mentioned mine. I scroll over and look at yours. You're either entering into a new dating criteria on Tinder. You have a new interest <laughs> or you're, you're thinking about a, a race. Well, I'm not on dating apps because I am happily with Jess. So it's probably has to do with a race. Okay. Okay. That's good because your screen name says grandma's question mark. Grandma's marathon is uh, early June. Marathon, grandma's marathon. Gotcha. Known as, yeah, not like grandma's. Anybody got a hot grandma? Something is that what you were thinking? I don't know. Grandma's question mark. Should I? Do you take me for the type? I don't know how you would identify the type. <laughs> I don't know what that type is. Listen, I appreciate tenured people. I appreciate tenured people and very tenured people, but not in the dating world. I just it's one where you, you can't. You don't want to get too tenured with your partner. You know, meaning. <laughs> I'm married to an older woman, Kirk. That's right. I forget. Well, you must be the hot one then in the relationship. The older girl scoring the young hot buck. (laughs) She's the rich one. Anyways, um, so uh, I took a week off of running after my 17-mile trail race. It was planned. I needed a down week. And I've been back to running for eight days, seven days. And as predicted, folks... And I will say this until we no longer have a podcast. If you are training hard with purpose regularly, rest is only going to serve you to be better, not 
make you unfit or take away. Right away back to training, my metrics are looking great already week one. But last night, I got a message from Ian Caskey, and he said, my boy's not running the marathon anymore. I have a bib number I can transfer. It's yours if you want it. Mm. And I said, oh, give me a week and think about it. So then this morning, I got up and ripped a marathon-style workout, even though I did a hard workout Saturday as well. I was like, I'm going to get right to work just in case. So now I'm pondering. I said, give me a week or two. I'm going to think about it and see if see how the body's feeling. So... There's like a 20% chance. A grandma's is in June? June, yeah. Is that? I can look up the exact date, but it's cutting it pretty close after taking a week off from training. I'm trying to look up. Is it like third weekend in June? Yeah, I'm trying to check that out. My computer's being slow here for some reason. Um, But yeah, I think that, I mean, you know, whatever. Timelines are timelines. I can make that work let's see grandma's marathon is june 17th that's plenty oh no no june 21st 21st wait no that's no that's 2014 what is no what is happening right now it's pulling up bunk (laughs) data you're not gonna make that one okay june 17th see if i can find june June 17th 17th. i got it it's like seven weeks we'll see that's all i'm gonna say we'll see I'll keep you guys posted. But rest is not the devil. Rest is the angel that you need on your shoulder telling you to chill out. And then suddenly you come back and you're like, why do I feel good every day? Why are my metrics so good? Huh. Maybe because you finally soaked up that hard work you were doing by being lazy, overeating a little bit for the week. Like I felt like a sloppy POS craving exercise. And I ran 536 Mm. pace for nine miles of float style intervals, going in and out of 515 pace and six minute pace back and forth, playing that game. Right? Like, I think, I, no way I do that on tired legs. So, point being, I'm going to shove that down your throats till the end of time, folks. And YouTube bracket. I'll gobble that down. I'm a believer. Good. So, if you had to rest up now, and on Saturday you're going to run a marathon, which, again, we've talked about, you've never run a road marathon. So, if you're going to do your marathon Saturday, you have from now till then to rest and sharpen up. <laughs> what pace would you go out at? Grandma's is hilly in the back half. Well, my longest run has only only been two hours, you know, re- in recent times. I've done a few two-hour long runs on the trails. or So I'm not prepared to go race for two and a half by any means. Mm-hmm. I believe that I could go out and hold 550 confidently. I think I could do that conversationally for most of the race. I think if I that would be a safer bet for me to not implode. If I were to race it, like, if I were ready, I'd go out at 540 pace and try to run 227, okay. I think. 544 pace is a 230 marathon on the head. I know what it felt like today. I need to build some durability, but I think 540 would be where I'd try to go out on. And that would put me somewhere at 227, 30, 228, something like that. What do you think? I think 550 is a nice thing to do. Thanks. Now, did you watch? No, you probably didn't because it happened really, really, really early in the morning. But did you check out the results from the London Marathon this weekend? I did. Did you see what they went out in and what they finished in? They went out blazing because I saw the first 5K uh, split for the winner. And it was like 431 pace through 5K or something. So fast. They went through the half at like 101... 
40. And there's a guy there, Kelvin uh, Kiptum is in there. He's run one race ever and he went 201 high, 201.50 or something like that. This is his second race. Is he a flash in the pan? Is he not? No, he ran like 201.29. He almost, he was seconds from Kipchoge's record. 25. There you go. Yeah, so he went 59.45 negative split his second half. Still the way to run the marathon. So he went out and they're like, well, he's not going to be a 201 guy again because he's out in 101 and uh, any negative split. So even the best in the world keep proving that in the marathon, when in doubt, chill. Just chill out. And everybody who chilled out performed well in Boston, fast or rewind a week. Mm-hmm. And you have so, there's no rush in a two plus hour race. Like you have to remind yourself if you swing too hard by 1% on the front half, you bleed out 4% on the back half. Whereas if, if you just chill by 1% on the front half, sometimes you can overswing by 1% on the back half. But like, if you overswing on the front half just slightly, like you just ble- the whole, you can't staunch the bleeding uh, nearly quick enough. Yeah. I mean, some people pull it off, but it's not the best way to run your fastest marathon. I don't think we generally don't see neg- positive split records in the marathon, do we? Not generally, no, because you have to be closing it down because there's this. It's not that these credits are available to you in any format how you want to spend them. You can't go spend a bunch of 430 miles early and say, I'll just run five minutes later. That's not how the body works. It's not guaranteed. But you are guaranteed for these pros. to If you go out at five, you can spend your 430s later. That is guaranteed. And it's, the, the best way I can talk about this is it's our body handles pace the way it handles cold or heat. Let's say you were to go into a sauna and it was cranked all the way up to, let's say, like 180 degrees. You'd walk into it, and you could not handle it. But if you got in there at 100 degrees and just moved it up degree by degree by degree, you would eventually arrive to a temperature that you couldn't have handled by stepping into it, but you've just acclimatized to it, and you can handle it. Whereas if you got right in at that, minutes, you couldn't do it. It's like stepping into a hot shower that you, you cooked a little too hot on. You get in there and you're like, you can only like get your hands in there in the beginning. You're like, oh, that's too much in your arms. And you get it on your body. And you're like, I'm going to step away for a second. Like you're not ready for it. But if I just yeah. stood under cold water and gradually ramped it up, it's the same exact thing. You're you're 100% right. Keep going with that analogy. Well, and so that's how the pace is as well. It's so shocking to jump into race pace that if you jump into a faster than you probably can keep race pace, it's too painful. It, you're you're working too hard to be able to do it, and you can't possibly be super efficient at it. But there's a reason so many people PR their 5K in college during the 10K, or they PR their half marathon during the marathon. It's because you work into a rhythm. You're not trying to run a PR, and so you're very relaxed, which leads to much more efficiency because you're not carrying tension in your body. And you're not fighting for speed, you're letting it come to you. And then as you build up and you build up and you build up, you're using a different version of that, let's call it for the pros, a 430 per mile pace stride than you would use if you started at the beginning. When you run 430 pace as a pro men's marathoner, you're bouncy and you're popping off the ground. But 20 miles in, when you drop down to 430, it's a smoother stride. 
at the same exact pace and it's less costly. Early on, you don't feel the cost. And so you use like a twitchier stride. And when you build into a pace, you actually can just keep it longer. So that's what these people are learning over and over and over. And what people tend to forget, even at the pro level, is that those rules govern all of us. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you have to jog out, but it means your fastest mile can't be your first mile or you're setting yourself up for failure. Well, yeah, it's like gunning it off the line in your car, slamming the gas down and screeching and getting up to speed as fast as you can versus the one who gets up to speed gradually. Like by the time your tanks run out, who is going to have gone farther? Well, mm-hmm. I can probably guess the one who's feathering the gas. And if it's if the whole marathon is just a yeah. gradual pedal push, just the most calculated effort, that's going to be the best way to get the fastest and most efficient result. Now, like doing that is a whole nother conversation. Being so in touch with your body to know that you are going out conservative and that you can handle it when a marathon is mostly uncharted territory at race effort for most people. Mm-hmm. And even a subject study of one or two races doesn't mean you're going to have it dialed perfectly for, let's say, your third or fourth marathon. So like that's a whole other side conversation, but you are absolutely right. And that was sort of what you brought up talking about today. We're going to kind of, it's a little bit of a BS session about the races that happened recently, but not to you know poach your idea by introducing it, but it was more like, when we watched what, um, I guess both at the Spartan 3K event this weekend and then last weekend at Boston, watching Eliud Kipchoge fade the back half, uh, who had the heavy expectations to win, the conversation of like being ready for the actual race demands comes up. And we've had versions of this conversation before, but why don't you, why don't you talk about what happened to Eliud Kipchoge and, and how it's important for people listening to hear. Well, Eliud Kipchoge came into Boston as the greatest marathoner of all time. And as such, everyone was ready for him to put on a show. And he has such calm confidence in everything he does. And it came out in the press conference before the race. And he said, we changed nothing for this race. We did the same preparation that we do before every marathon. And it was kind of applauded. Like he's so good. He's so dialed in that he just knows what will work. And yet there were some whispers and rumbles of, I really hope he does know what's going to work because Boston is a hilly course and deceptively nasty in its back head. It's back half back end is tough. And you don't necessarily notice what that first 10K downhill is doing to you until you have to again use those legs to climb and descend in the second half. But he's so great that he got a pass from almost everyone for not having prepped for the hills. And then what happened? At 30K, the move got made and he was done. He didn't even attempt to go with the move. He just let them go because he was fried. Now, he said that he had a, a quad thing going on, which, yeah, that's real. But was it pre-existing? He didn't really talk about that. There's a good chance that quad thing came about because he hadn't prepped for downhills. That's what's going to happen when you don't prep for downhills and 30 kilometers of racing on pavement. There's a good chance your quads do act up on you. And so if the greatest marathoner of all time still has to abide by the rule of specificity. It's a great reminder to all of us as it's spring, races are starting to pop up again. If your race is several deviations from the standard distance, 
that a bunch of other races are clumped around like 5Ks, 10Ks, 15Ks. They're all kind of the same wheelhouse. Marathons like Boston or a 3K like the Spartan did. Uh, Those are such specific races that you do have to spend time doing some sort of specificity in order to even unlock the ability and fitness that you have. If it can bite the greatest marathoner of all time, it certainly can bite us humanoids out here doing our best to do a pathetic version of what he Mm -hmm. does, right? And so it is an interesting conversation to have, like, uh, I'm going to do the same thing I do before every marathon in prep is a whole conversation you could pick apart, right? Like, is it time to change stimulus or... Are we promoting stagnation? You've been training for decades, so obviously I'm not his coach, and I'm sure he has a you know he's well taken care of. But it just like makes you reflect on yourself. If Eliud's human, human, I am human. And then you go on the flip side of the coin, and you listen to like Emma Bates talk after her race. She was the first finishing female American, actually finished what 20 seconds behind. Uh, the winner actually had a legit shot at taking the win as an American in a fast run Boston Marathon. We've had others, other American women win the Boston Marathon in slower years, but this would have been probably our fastest Boston Marathon. Is this our fastest American woman at the Boston Marathon to date? It's got to be. I thought she set the American Boston record. Right. I believe so. I should double check. And. And in her interview, she's a Minnesota girl. She actually is from 20-minute miles from from me in Elk River, Minnesota. But um, talked about how her leg strength was. I just have really strong legs, and I really work my legs and my core to make sure they're bulletproof. She said, the key is that I wasn't – like, I've been ready for this course already because of my training style. And obviously, it kept her in the game all the way to the very end. And so you have a very big difference. Emma Bates – from the outside, wasn't projected really to do much. She knew how her training was going and had a lot of confidence along with her coach. And she finishes fifth. And then the guy expected to win finishes four minutes back and takes seventh. So it's like, yeah, specificity Mm -hmm. matters. If you want a a fool's chance of going out and upsetting somebody in your race coming up, maybe, just maybe you're the one turning the dial just perfectly. Like, yeah, I know that course I'm coming up. I know the elevation profile. I know the soggy terrain. I know whatever makes that course unique. Maybe you can't outfitness Eliud Kipchoge, but maybe you can outplay him. And that's just such an interesting conversation. Like, it's not always fitness and metrics and VO2 max and lactate buffering that matters. It's like horses for courses. Well, you can train your horse to be ready for any course. And so... I I just like the topic in general. It excites me to talk about. Yeah, and it's that time of year that A, races are popping up, and B, we're probably the farthest removed from remembering what this feels like. Mm -hmm. We're just excited. Training's been progressing, or it hasn't. Sometimes fear is entering the equation, but, you know, I've I've raced this before. It's going to suck, but I'll I'll be fine. Elliot Kipchoge had won every marathon he'd ever entered except one, I think maybe two second loss and he's the world record holder in two different categories. So it jumped up and bit him. So what does specificity mean and why does it matter? I would say that it matters the the weirder the races you hear all the time of people like I just won this race off nothing but base training. Yeah. That's great when you're racing down to a certain amount. 
If you're prepping for a marathon, you can run a good 10K. Prepping for a 10K, you can run a good 5K, a good mile. Those things exist, but you can't prep for a marathon and run a great mile. And you can't prep for a mile and run a great marathon. You can't prep for a Spartan beast and run a great 3K. You can't prep for the 3K and run a great beast. The farther they are apart, the more specificity matters. You can't prep for a flat marathon and run a great hilly marathon. You can't run a prep for a hilly marathon and run a great flat marathon. You can have levels of success there, but the more there are outlier skill sets required, the more specificity matters. And it doesn't mean you have to change necessarily always how you train. It's just sometimes where you train. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I, if you notice, I wasn't paying <clears throat> paying attention to you. Um, <laughs> it's because I was looking something I up did that on last episode. Well, yeah, you were looking up something on your phone. I I pulled up a post here. Can yeah. you tell who that is? Just by the very any idea? No, I it's just pixelated for me. All right, it's Tyler Veerman's post about, and, and uh, the reason we're talking about this is because we it's heard a perfect some, example. Right. We heard, um, we heard some, you know, talking about Boston in the Hills and it bit a few people on the backside. People bled out. Connor Mance ran his last two miles at six O pace when he ran the rest of his marathon under five minute pace. Like talk about paying for it right. on the back end. I mean, six O pace sounds fast to you guys for Connor Mance. He could actually do that sleeping. So point being is it caught a lot of people. And then in the three K this weekend, for those of you who don't know, was the inaugural event of the Spartan three K national series down in Jacksonville. And we had a lot of like endurance athletes go down and give it a crack at the 3k and Mm -hmm. you saw like some people you expected to do well didn't and then the ones who were specifically trained did and that should come as no surprise but like we have athletes who have won big races that went out there and got their butts kicked um because they weren't specifically trained and thought that their training you know they'd take a stab at it anyways and tyler veerman it's just one of many who rode up, but biggest takeaways from racing the new Spartan Race 3K this weekend. Running two heats of the 1K loops, then a 3K made for a pretty challenging race. By the time the final event rolled around, I was gassed. Okay, lesson one, right? If you're going to take something like that seriously, maybe you're not as t- talented as Tyler Veerman, who has as much talent as pinky fingers the rest of us do in our entire bodies. Well, one thing you could do is attempt that format in training. For example, like that is the format I'm mm-hmm. going to follow, and you could do it, you know, really race specific. Too. Other than the laser pistol being a tad finicky, it was fun to try, but still not as satisfying as a spear throw. Jumping on a plane, then racing the same day are not ideal when you're coming straight from dry 30 degree weather to 80 degree humidity. My body definitely felt like poop. Okay, another example here. I have a space heater I run in my. I have a space heater I run in my office when it's cold. In fact, it's running right now because we have a chilly day here. If I was all in, that space heater's going in the same room as my Nordic track. I'm turning it to 90 degrees. I'm letting it fill the room up for an hour, and then I'm getting in there and doing work. And I'm not saying he's emotionally all in on this, but I'm saying, how do you pick holes at somebody as good as Tyler Veerman? And I don't mean to, I'm not shackling you, Tyler. I would have done the same thing. Like I, I would end up in the same boat. But you start thinking, okay, listen to what went wrong. What could I do to give me a fighting chance against the pros? And then he goes on and he says, if I were to change anything, I think I'd be better to break this into three 1K loops. It would offer more exciting and intense finish for the viewers to watch. An earlier start would be more ideal to avoid the heat. Well, it started late and there was heat. But nonetheless, I could read a few more of these, but you get the idea of what I'm getting at, right? Tyler Veerman on paper had beat all these guys he raced against. Yeah. But there was something missing. And so... 
between the and I know this is kind of a long-winded uh, little spiel I'm giving, but between the three K and seeing race specificity matter, and then seeing the great Elliot Kipchoge get smashed, uh, it's just like top of mind for us. And now we have races coming up where we're like, okay, what do we do specifically to make sure that we give ourselves the best mm-hmm. fighting chance? So, and it's very interesting seeing Tyler make those statements about I was fried going into the final round because he his most recent race was a fifty k, right? Right. He's he's prepping for ultras, some ultra. Yeah, if not a 50K, it was a 50-miler. He did. He ran a 100K earlier this spring down in, I think, Arizona. Eh, it doesn't matter where. He flew down from Colorado somewhere. Uh, he's He's gone all in on engine building. He's been a 24-hour runner-up at Spartan Ultra Championships, and he won the 15K OCR World Championship. So engine's not his problem, and he was exhausted going into round four. If someone who can race for 24 hours was tired going into the third round of racing, it shows that it's not just endurance that matters. It's specificity of endurance. And then we had someone like VJ, who one week earlier or two weeks earlier took a bit of a beating at Savage Race in a 10K and admitted that he's not as fit as he thought he was and he needs to reassess and get working. And then after the race, he said... This felt just like a decafit, an outdoor decafit, which is for people that don't do decafit, it's uh, 10 stations of work with either 100 meters or 500 meters in between, depending whether you're doing the deca mile or the decafit full. So it's either 100 meters, which adds up to a mile, or 500 meters, which adds up to a, a 5K. But what won out there was specificity. He wasn't training for the 3K, he was doing a lot of high rocks and deca work. And in DECA, oftentimes you do a mile and a 5K in the same day or a strong and a mile in the same day. And so he came in not able to run with these guys for a 10K, certainly not able to run with them for a 50K or 100K, but he realized inadvertently, I specifically somewhat trained for this. The feeling of this just felt like something I'd been doing, even though it's not what I've been doing. It felt normal. And as a result, he faded the least out of anyone throughout the day. His fastest lap was his first lap of the finals. He's the only person that was able to then hold it for the next lap and the next lap where other people got out hard in prelims and got worse in finals or got out hard in finals and faded bad. He was just there all day because he could sit in the type of work he was comfortable doing. Not the most fit guy there, but the most specifically prepared for that feeling. There's also a lot of magic, and I will I will scream this to no end on this podcast too. That like two to three weeks after like one of your first big races, like he went to Savage, got a little mm-hmm. humbled. Like that stimulus you can't replicate in training like perfectly. You can get close, but something about those race efforts, like a couple weeks later, suddenly you're like I just noticed I leveled up, and I think there was a little bit of that. He reframed mm-hmm. his mind, came back, and then was obviously super specific as well, but. And that's what it is in a niche sport, um, which the marathon is very specific training that is required. And the 3K format is obviously very specific training that is required. When it comes down to the tip of the spear, accessing the last few percentages of your potential, like you kind of have to split hairs. Actually, you do. You do have to split hairs. And so I think case in point, and I don't know if we went down the list – especially in the 3K, I'd have to look at the results. But 
Um, who was the second place uh, guy who surprised everybody? Jack Bauer will be proud of his pick. Well, I think Alvaro um, actually slipped up into second. Oh, that's right. Third, third place. place then was uh, Manuel Defoe. Hey, thanks for letting me have Alvaro in the draft, by the way. I knew he was going to race vicious down there. Thank you for taking him. I know how fit I am when I race him. I know how, I know my fitness, and I know his ability because I've raced him shoulder to shoulder. So that's where I was coming from. I was like, anyways, um, I would really... He's a 9-0 steeplechaser, and he raced like it. I'd just really like to see the lead-in for those guys. I, I don't know if you saw <sighs> any write-ups. Have you seen write-ups from any of them? Mm-mm. No. Well, and we know Leon, no, who is almost knocking on the podium. Uh, very race-specific with his transition work and things like that. But I think the next point to pivot with this conversation is, okay, so, like, what are the factors you need to look at then? And this is going to be a shorter episode today, folks, um, in case you're wondering. So we're going to get to the point here. Um, is, okay, how do I know what to do? Like, how do I know what to do? How do I know mm-hmm. to, how to be race-specific? Like, I understand it's running in hills. Okay, great. Like, is that enough? I guess what what do you need to look at is what I'm asking you. I think the best thing anyone can do before a race is read the race recaps from athletes in previous years. Hmm. It's so illuminating to look at that because, yeah, you're going to get a bunch of excuses and you're going to get a bunch of poor me or I just felt great and everything went fine. But in between the lines and sometimes explicitly laid out, they give you the blueprint for how to train by telling you what they did or didn't do correctly. They give you the blueprint for how does the course hit and what should you start thinking about to do to prepare for this. All you'd have to do is read the last three years of Boston finishers to realize I wasn't prepared for the weather. It was slippery out there. I wore socks or shoes that really held water or didn't grip. And my legs were fried by the time I got to mile 22. They were just beaten up from the hills. If enough good, well-prepared professional athletes show up and still all say the same thing, you know that they all thought they were ready and weren't. And so then you have to go to, what would I say is being totally prepared? And now let's overstep that by a notch or two to guarantee that I am prepared because they all thought they were ready. So if I think I'm ready, I'm probably about to make the same mistake they did. So an example of that, maybe let's say if you were to look at the Boston course, for example, Boston Marathon, net downhill should be fast, easy, no problem. I just get gravity can do the work for the first three miles and then I get some more downhills and it's all going to be gravy. Wrong. You'd think it'd be fast course, but it's historically a slower course. You know, it might be uh, as simple as, okay, well, I'm going to do my three minute repeats on I'm just using that for an example, by the way. Like, I'm doing three-minute repeats on rolling hills today. Yes, it's going to affect my overall pacing, and yes, but I'm going to be getting downs and ups every rep. Mm-hmm. And yes, I know, like, it's not going to look as pretty on paper or on Strava or whatever because it's going to affect my times, but that's sort of the point, right? If if yeah. we know there's a net downhill in Boston of, I don't know, whatever, 500 feet with some climbing in it, well, guess what? Like, Maybe in the middle of my long run, I'm going out and I know I have one gradual hill. Well, I'm going to go and repeat that six to eight times in the middle of my long run and then continue on my route, for example. See how that feels. I mean, pretty small tweaks can be done. Um, For example, this trail race I ran like two weeks ago, 
Um, I, I haven't descended. Uh, it's been winter, and I haven't sought out the appropriate terrain to descend. All of our trails and ski hills are covered in skiers and snow, so we're not able to use them. Could I have driven out to Stillwater and run the hilly roads? Absolutely. I didn't make it a priority. And I could have probably taken back a minute or two on the back half after I was smashed and had four miles of flat running left. Mm-hmm. So point being, where there's a will, there's a way. I didn't do the right things either. I would have been LU'd in his marathon. Luckily, the field is a little less dense in these trail races I run versus the Boston Marathon. But nonetheless, that would be an example of a way to do it. Would you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I would. I, I originally said sometimes it's not what you do, but where you do it or how you execute it. So taking the workouts that you know work for the marathon, let's say that 3x5K. That's a very classic workout for a marathoner. 3x5K with two to three minute rest in between. Sometimes they'll do a mild jog in between, whatever it is. That workout can be done to not prepare for Boston or to prepare for Boston. You can prepare for a regular marathon by going three by 5K. You can prepare for Boston by finding the biggest drop 3K, 5K course you can find, 5K let's say, doing something where you're going to lose 200 feet over the course of 5K and run that as your first rep and then have someone and then have someone drive you back to the top and run it as your second rep and then run your third rep in reverse back up it now you're running late stage running uphill after putting in 10k of descending and if you don't have access to that finding a treadmill and just blocking up the rear end like three inches doing a 5k tempo at a slight downhill is going to do so much more to beat up your quads than you realize. And then doing it a second time, you're going to fully understand what Boston's going to do to your legs if you did 2x5K at a slight downhill on the treadmill and then tried to do your final 5K outdoor. That's a way of doing the exact same workout and saying, I care less about the metrics now. I'm going to hit the intended effort level on a specific terrain to feel it out. It's not good enough to do hill reps to prepare for Boston. You have to do hill reps after you've run downhill a bunch, and you have to do late stage downhill after your legs are beat up. So setting up your workout so that you hit the correct thing at the correct time matters just as much as running for the correct pace in the correct time. Yeah. Yeah, the sort of the <clears throat> Fred Clary 110% rule. It's like mm-hmm. if you know there's net downhill and uphill, and we're using Boston as an example because it's fresh on the mind of whatever it is, then go and do that on your long run, but maybe exaggerate how much climbing and descending is also done um, on your long run. Just a mm-hmm. little bit so, like, nothing catches you off guard. You see a lot of, like, like marathoners or even sometimes trail racers, like, they'll go and, you know, I saw a couple I followed in the lead-up doing their mile repeats on the track. And, yes, that's great. It's fantastic, and it's good for learning, understanding pacing and how your body is going to feel, and it's going to serve you 95% of the way there. Of course it is. At the same time... It's like, well, is any course perfectly flat? What, you know, what are the nuances within there? And then maybe some time was left on the table by by those people as well. Um, if you had to, um, I'm going to set you up and then I'm going to run to the bathroom because I have to pee again. I must have chugged too much water after my run, Bracken. And, and you're going to start talking and then I'm going to come back and pretend like I never left. But the question is. We can pause, but I will happily do that too. No, I want to see what you come up with. Or you can just plug our t-shirts. But anyways, um, I want to shift that like we have a lot of OCR listeners, and I think the next pivot would be to just specifically apply to them. 
okay, they're an endurance athlete and they're training for traditional OCR races. Uh, how, how would you pivot your training to be specifically ready for something like short course? Mm-hmm. What, what comes to mind for you? The first thing is that we have these classic going, by the way. compromisers. You're talking to nobody. <laughs> we have these classic compromisers that we use over and over in our workouts. OCR 400s, you and I, we always recommend doing burpees and tuck jumps and walking lunges or jumps, split lunges, things like that that do the same thing um, because they, they fatigue you very quickly. But they fatigue you in a very specific way. Or we do KDE, a two-minute sled push or pull or plate drag behind you and then a five-minute run. Those are really good compromising efforts to get your legs to a certain point so that you then have to learn how to recover while running a pretty moderate pace. But in that OCR uh, or in that Spartan Race 3K format, you outside of the barb wire crawl, I don't think you spent longer than 8 to 10 seconds doing anything. Some people might have spent 15 seconds on the Z-Wall. Outside of that, everything was done in 10 seconds or less. Most of the time, three or four seconds or less, and then you're right back to running at a fast pace. And it's much less about, all right, let's grind for two minutes, get my quads really tired, and then you have a five-minute run where you spend the first minute recovering and getting back down to your homeostasis level of where you'd like to be for that run, and then running like a metronome. No, now it's more like, how much can I recover in three to five seconds of explosive movement that's not running? And get right back to running an uncomfortable pace. So switching what the compromiser is to something a lot shorter and a lot spicier. And then keep the running pace up in between. It's much more about transitions than it is about compromising. And then you have to do it again. And then you have to do it again. And then you have to do it again. Maybe extending some of those reps out and doing more two and three part workouts, split tempos, things like that, where you're used to going hard for a bit, getting some recovery, and then having to go hard again to get through the rounds of the race. So what do you think about all that that I just talked about, Kirk? I 100% agree with every single word that came out of your mouth. You nailed it. Thank you. I caught the back half. I caught the gist. I think to add to that, if I'm picking up what you just laid down, reading between the lines here... um, is also something about uh, in a short format race or even in a traditional OCR race that goes three, six miles, a half marathon, is not only like training the right energy systems, but then it's like, for example, you made a comment in the broadcast I watched briefly, and VJ Jones took back time on the monkey bars or the multi-rig. Whereas another athlete took time on VJ on like the sand ba- on the on the bucket carry or something, and you're you're what you'd said was so spot on. I wanted to fist bump you. Was look at what just happened. Was it Emmanuel Defoe? Is that who it was? I don't remember. Yeah, he hammered the bucket, and VJ just jumped off the Z wall. Right. So he hammered the bucket, expended a bunch of energy to make up a time gap. Whereas, so he he burnt a match to catch VJ. Whereas VJ not only went through the multi-rig and the Z-Wall faster, he also was more relaxed doing it. So it's learning to approach the transitions and manage effort. Like anybody who goes on something that's overhead, for example, it's very easy to go huh, and brace, heart rate spikes, all of that stuff, and it's a hit to your system. Whereas if you understand how to relax into all of these things, it impacts your running less. And so... 
working on, I think, that specific element. Okay, yes, I can do Z-Wall fast. Yes, I can carry the bucket fast, but at what expense? And so working on the least amount of effort for the fastest time spent doing said thing. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's where VJ really, I think that's why VJ won, is he spent the least amount of effort in transition and obstacles and also was able to to get through them faster simultaneously. That's why he was able to keep the highest percentage of his running. And I believe that either if he's not training that now specifically, that's fine, but he spent years of that at Black Forest OCR in his backyard. And so some of that might still be in there. But point being, also staying relaxed through things, and you have to practice that. You can't just go do things like that and use the least amount of energy possible if you haven't been exposed to it repeatedly before. And so I think that's an important takeaway for me on that one. Definitely. He was probably the fifth or sixth fastest runner there. If they were just to take the obstacles out and race 1K, 1K, 3K, I think his aggregate time would have been fifth or sixth. I would guess Manuel Defoe beats him, Botris beats him, Nick Mask beats him, um, Alvaro definitely beats him, and then they, that would put him in fifth there, and then there's an argument you can make for one or two other guys. But if you took just the obstacles, he's probably somewhere between first and third on those in terms of just speeding through the obstacles. And then if you somehow could measure energy spent doing them, he's first. 100%. So suddenly he makes up five to six running places just by being the smoothest and fastest in and out of everything. There were obstacles that other people were faster through, but it was a tense type of fast. Correct. So yeah, just the how you spend those credits matters every bit as much of how much money do you bring to the table. Yeah, 100%. And that translates to regular, regular in quotes, running too, whether it's the roads or the trails. How much are you fighting to climb that 100-foot gain hill that happens in Boston in that half mile or whatever it is? How much are you overexerting? Instead, your, your heart rate goes up six beats a minute Well. You know, Bates' heart rate goes up too because she's learned to relax into the hills because not because her fitness is any different or better than yours, but because she's understood how to approach it uh, due to exposure. And then the same thing goes for flowing the downhills. Let's say when when they had that early on, like how can I stay relaxed and and pitter-patter with the softest foot strike possible to create the least amount of damage if that's a thing? And the only way to Mm -hmm. do that, if all things are equal, all their VO2 maxes and all their 5Ks are exactly the same leading up, is like that splitting of hairs makes a big difference. And I think learning to stay relaxed through what the course is going to demand is very different than going out there gritting your teeth and like muscling through it because that typically doesn't work out the back half. And so it's exposing constantly to the right stimulus and then learning how to do it in control. Right, Because even a 3K event took 20 minutes and you have to practice self-restraint even there and manage effort big time there. And so you can relate that to any race you would like. You just have to pick apart the small things that are going to be the difference makers. Um, Both those things just jumped out at me um, from like those two very different races. Yeah. Well, and to be Boston specific or a long downhill race specific – there is such a difference, you're right, in between running downhill fast and running downhill without taking damage. Now, part of that is just doing it a lot and building up the resistance to damage. But you and I both know if we were to do two uh, downhill time trials, if you were to run the first one, let's say it was a 5K downhill down a mountain, three miles of descending. If we ran the first one at 100% effort and the second one at 90% effort, 
our total time would be significantly slower than if we ran the first one at 90% effort and the second one at 100% effort. Even though it's the same amount of energy you're spending, your net time will be slower if you are aggressive on the first one. You can still be fast on the first one, but you can't be aggressively hitting the ground on the first one, or you take too much damage to be fast on the second one. And we saw that with a lot of runners in Boston. People who faded late, it correlated to how bouncy they were going down those first two or three miles. Connor Mance is an example of that. He was up leading the front of that pack down those first couple hills. He didn't really need to be. He wasn't running significantly faster than the guy in 10th place, but he was running significantly harder into the ground than the guy in 10th place. And as a result, he was running his easy pace the last two miles rather than his race pace. So just intentionality with how you're placing your feet into the ground early on sometimes matters as much as how much fitness you brought to that race. It's a bizarre thing, but it's also why people love the mountains and the trails because it's not just an engine contest. The hillier something is, the better you have to execute. So to summate, folks, most of you are the one out there aren't standing on the top of every podium that you you know, toe the line to that race, right? Like we are all looking to get to the next level or find any way to get an edge on the competition who we yearn to beat, right? Or you're looking to gap somebody who you always go back and forth with and you're sick of it. She takes one, you take one. She takes one, you take one. You all know those people, whether it's in your friend circle or when you go to travel to races or the Spartan series. It's like you think about the hair splitting we're talking about for the course. Get ahead. What does, if you're racing the National Series, what does Big Bear have coming up that I need to really be able to execute on or Utah or whatever your race is? You get the point. It's like those things are actually going to make a difference. And if you're not sure if you can out-fitness them, well, you can out-chess them, so to speak. And I think that's very valuable that like it's not like, oh, well, their 5K was 19 minutes and I time-trialed at 2020. Being like, there's no way. There is a way. There actually is a way. And so you got to be the one who fights and claws and figures it out and, and plays chess with the puzzle pieces and figures out how to win against an opponent who's, in quotes, better than you. And it's possible. And I think if you asked 100 people who would win the Boston Marathon, uh, 99 of them would have said Eliud Kipchoge based on his resume, and he didn't even come close to winning because other people moved their puzzle pieces around a little more appropriately. And so I think if you get anything out of this, it's like there's hope. There's hope for you who isn't on paper the fastest mm-hmm. to still go out there and punish those idiots out on course. And that's pretty – I mean, that's encouraging. Yeah. There's there's this weird reaction in the running community to the people who don't put themselves in position to win a race. You saw a few people talk about it about Scott Fauble after his third straight seventh place finish. Mm -hmm. You saw a few comments like, great, you took seventh for the third time in a row, but you'll never win it or go top three because you're not putting yourself in position to do so. And it's a weird, it's logical. Yeah. Are you ever going to be a world champ if you don't run the type of strategy needed to win a world championship? No. But I think it should be applauded because most runners in the world Almost everyone that we're speaking to right now does not have a chance to do, uh, to, to be a world champion or to be a professional athlete. And so they get to be inspired by the type of, of performance, which tells them since I don't need to even concern myself 
with trying to win the race, I can do what Scott does. Every race, I get to be the person who shows up and lets the people burn out and runs my best race and passes people towards the end. Who cares what place that gets you in? You're going to have a positive experience if you're the person that's not dying at the end. So yeah, some elite runners get criticized. That's why you'll never be great. Like, well, that's also why we're never going to fall apart in a race Mm -hmm. or at least to the level that some people do is because we're all going to say we're going to run our race. That's a huge skill to have and it shouldn't be criticized. And it always comes back to that conversation. Like, sure, the person who won gets all the credit, but maybe the person who took seventh actually run the best race, ran the best race in the entire field. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a lot of power to that. My guess is Scott Fable, Fable, Scott Fable may have run the best executed race in the field to finish seventh. And so, you know, that's also something you can, I don't know, aspire to, to do. I, I imagine maybe, maybe the winner probably ran a better race, right? I, I, you could be hard to argue against that. Right. But I, I'd like to look at the splits. The winner may though have gotten less out of their fitness and talent than scott did yeah that's true the winner might have said i sat as long as possible and then i sprinted the last 2k and i won but that certainly wasn't my best performance scott might have got every single drop out of it right it's a good point um anything you want to bow tie this thing with as we uh, wrap up here we have a few shirts left we do have a few a few shirts left but in particular we have a ton of extra smalls So if you have children, or if you are tiny, or you know someone who's tiny, we have extra smalls that don't appear in the drop-down on the website. There's just an asterisk that says, for extra smalls, reach out directly. So reach out to Kirk directly for that, or to me. doesn't really matter, but it'd probably make more sense for Kirk. But that would be the way to get an extra small. But we have extra smalls in every color available. For some reason, Bracken... Well, we're not computer nerds. We're tr- Bracken's trying to be, I think. But we're running nerds. Couldn't figure out how to get extra smalls on the website. Yeah, and we just kind of forgot about it. And now I'm sitting on a bunch <laughs> of extra smalls. Um, so I have extra smalls in every color. Um, black, green, retro logo, and blue. And then we have a few select sizes left in other colors. But everything must go, and we're almost there. They're half off in case you've missed it. 50% off. And for those of you also ordering, like the shipping is standard whether you buy one shirt or four shirts. So you might as well buy more shirts because the shipping cost is steep. I understand it's like six, seven bucks. But like if you buy four shirts, it's the same price of shipping as if you buy one. So you might as well just put a few in your cart. Get them out of my bedroom or out of my office. I don't want these shirts in here anymore. And they're great shirts. So how's that for a plug? That's a great plug. And you know the rule. Buy two. Pop the sleeves off one. (laughs) Foolproof. All right. I got nothing else. I'm happy. I'm happy with this conversation if you are. I'm joyous. All right. Well, till next time. Is that it? It's a wrap. Till next time. Hopefully this was long enough to accompany you on your entire run. Typically we go over an hour. If you have to listen to some second tier podcast to finish out the last mile, I apologize. <laughs> we'll do better next time. 